Today, I am talking with an officer who has 30 years of experience in law enforcement. He has seen a lot over his career, and as a result, has a wide range of views on policing and where we are today. He started out in the Bay Area, and then in the mid-90s relocated to the Pacific Northwest, where he currently is a police chief for a medium-sized agency. He is a balanced, but not always predictable point of view that I think you will find fascinating. So Chief, thank you for talking with me today. I know you have many views on policing and I look forward to our conversation. So obviously when we talk today, I'm um, just sharing my personal point of view. There's a lot going on right now with law enforcement and just because I'm a police officer doesn't mean that my views are shared by other cops. You know, and I think that there's a perception in the public that because we all wear the same uniform, that we are also all the same in our backgrounds and perspectives and such. And, and I would say that I, nothing's further from the truth. You know, I think law enforcement is made up of a great deal of diversity and thought and background. Well, I, I completely agree. And having interviewed many officers over the past 10 years, I think you're right. And so thank you for sharing your views. I think where I'd like to start today is what made you decide to become a police officer? My father was a uh, police sergeant. You know, I remember being at playing football and my dad would be at a, a game and a bunch of the other dads came up to him and there were actually people my dad had arrested or who had been to their house for a call. And, uh, but I always remember that they respected my dad and, and I think it was because of the way he did his job. So, you know, growing up, I had a perception of who police officers were because I saw the kindness that they had and, you know, how, how much they took care of people uh, that were in need. As I grew up, at some point, I realized that that was not the typical perception of police. And I always idolized my dad, you know, and he taught us early on, my brother and I, that we should always give back to the community. And we were always volunteering in the community and helping others. And I actually started in law enforcement uh, as an, a volunteer explorer when I was in high school. I got my first job with the police department when I was 17, and I worked as a community service officer for a, a kind of medium-sized agency in the Bay Area. Uh, and as a community service officer, I wore a uniform, drove a police car, and I was actually still in high school at the time. You know, I was out there doing police work, but I wasn't armed. So, you know, I had to figure out how to communicate with people and, you know, maintain my own safety and, you know, maintain uh, voluntary cooperation and such without force. Eventually, I got hired to work in a jail. I actually worked in the jail during all the unrest related to Rodney King in the early 90s. Tell me about how that felt to you as a police officer. You know, seeing what happened with Rodney King made me a little bit ashamed of my choice of profession. I actually thought about getting out of law enforcement, and I remember it was a very frustrating time for me. And then not after Rodney King, there was a series of events that really caused the public to question integrity of law enforcement. Uh, I remember like one in particular was during the O.J. Simpson trial, a detective named Furman had been accused of saying racist things. And I remember everywhere I went in uniform, people would call, say, like, call me Furman just because I was a white guy in a uniform. And that was hard because I knew the way I did my job and I was always respectful to people. I was almost always able to gain voluntary compliance. Uh, you know, I rarely found myself needing to use force. But it was interesting because it was kind of a turning point for me. I remember one night we had a guy come in and he was African-American. And immediately when he came in, he picked me out and just despised me and started calling me Furman. And every chance he got when I'd walk by to do checks, he would yell at me and, and just obviously a lot of anger and resentment. It was my goal to just win him over with kindness. And I was just, I went out of my way to check on him. And even when he was yelling at me, calling me names, walking by, I'd stop and try to talk to him. And, and I remember I had to work all weekend with that guy. He was in custody for something that made him hold over for a few days before we transported him to the county jail. And I remember by the end of it, um, you know, getting ready to transport him. And uh, he actually apologized to me for the way he had treated me. And he's like, you know what, you know, I'm sorry I picked you out. I don't know what it was. But for some reason, seeing that I could win him over uh, kind of 
reinvigorated me to know why I was doing this job. And I was, um, because I love connection, connecting with other people. You know, I kind of recommitted to it. I actually changed my major to criminal justice. So now fast forward all these decades to George Floyd. How is your reaction similar or different? Um, it, it was different. I mean, I think then it was confusing. Now it's more disappointing, frustrating, angering. I don't, I don't even know how to articulate it. The whole reason I do this job is, you know, sanctity of human life. And to see somebody who's completely lost touch with that, or at least the appearance that he lost touch with that was, was hard. And seeing that, thinking like that image to me was very different than anything I'd ever seen, especially with the length of time. And having been in circumstances like that myself, where I had somebody who resisted and then they're contained and, you know, how we try to handle that and how, to, how we try to keep people safe, even when, especially when they're in our custody. Uh, it was so contrary to all that. And people, me included, particularly don't like violence when that person committing the violence is an authority figure. So it was, it was, it was upsetting for me. And today we will talk about what you see as steps law enforcement can take moving forward. Let me step back just a little. It's hard to imagine you have been wearing the badge since you were all of 17 years old. And as we've just discussed, you've seen a lot from a very young age. Reflect on that for me. I've never been particularly proud of the uniform or the badge. That's just a symbol of what I do. But I'm very proud of some of the heroic things I've done as a cop and some of the heroic things that other cops have done. But, you know, when there's a collision of an officer and a member of our public, usually during a crisis on the worst day of their lives, when there's a whole set of circumstances that collide and it ends up creating a you know, life-ending event, either the officer or the citizen being killed. Uh, it's really hard to see that and make sense of it. As a police officer right now with, with all that's going on, I really try to you know, recognize the mistakes of our past as a profession, as individuals in our profession, and for myself, what mistakes I've made, but really try to look for a path forward, better meet the needs of our community. Because I think right now, our community is questioning how we've always done things, and I, I think it's appropriate to do so. And why do you think it's appropriate to do so? So I think we constantly need to be evaluating the environment and what's going on in our society. I don't think you can identify a system in America today that's not racist. You know, the word now is systemic racism, and I think the frustration in law enforcement is that we're just the most obvious, and the consequences of our mistakes or of that racism is just the most upsetting because of the fact that we use force as part of our job sometimes. So again, we try to balance, you know, accountability. You know, when the public makes mistakes, at some point they need to be held accountable for those. We balance that also with officers making mistakes and how to hold them accountable. Um, because one of the things that we have not always done a good job of doing is weeding out the officers who can't handle that stress and ha can't perform properly. I think there are circumstances where officers can be trained, even when they make a mistake, to not repeat those mistakes. But I do think we need to do a better job of identifying officers who just shouldn't be doing this job. In the past, there has been resistance to that, and there's been agencies have been too quick to just give the officers a pass when they make those mistakes and not do meaningful training to repair it or uh, better ways of identifying officers who can't be fixed. But I, I do think one of the things that's being asked for right now is uh, decertification of officers across the country so an officer can't get fired for misconduct and they get hired somewhere else, and I'm a huge fan of that. You know, sometimes a cop may find themselves in a circumstance where they do something that's ugly that we're critical of. And that doesn't mean they're a bad person. It means they were in a bad circumstance, they made a mistake, but that sometimes is also gonna mean that they shouldn't be a cop anymore. How do you then weed out people who should not be cops? The only response we can have in these times is 
to be open to outside review, to be open to independent investigations, to put ourselves in a position where uh, we're going to gain back that credibility with the public to know that the officer's word matters and we're not idiots that are making mistakes or doing things on purpose that are wrong. Um, and I think that's the current perception among some members of the public. And again, I, in some ways, I think we've earned that because of the way we do things. Um, so I'm actually really open to doing better. A lot of times people will be like, well, the good cops, right? A lot of times it's not a good or bad cop. It's, it's, it's a circumstance. And you know, I've seen really bad cops do really great things. And I've seen really good cops make huge mistakes. So again, I, I, I think that on, in both circumstances, the answer is to gain the trust of the public by doing methodical, uh, systematic uh, investigations that are done by a group that the public trusts. And if that's not the police right now, maybe that's where we have to go. I do want to ask about the instances where you do need to use force. I do believe that the general public is in a place where they view any use of force, especially deadly force, as not being justified. What do you say to that point of view? I've been in those situations where I've come rolling up on a scene, either to protect myself or somebody else. I've had no choice but to use force to contain that situation and protect myself or somebody else. I remember having my gun out and having my finger on the trigger in response to somebody else threatening my life. And again, I've never fired my weapon other than at the range, but I've come close. And um, I've had a lot of situations where I probably could have shot somebody and been justified. And fortunately for me and them, things changed and I was able to get control of the situation without having to use deadly force. And I think every cop needs to train and prepare for those events. And they're very rare. Uh, but inevitably, there are going to be situations where uh, force is going to be necessary. So I think the scrutiny comes when the public doesn't trust us, right? Uh, they're automatically going to assume that the force, if any time we use force, that is inappropriate. I think we as a profession need to do a better job of helping people understand the complexities of force and, and when we should and shouldn't use it. We need to do a better job of training officers about how to avoid using force and only using it as a uh, when absolutely necessary. And I, I don't think we've done an adequate job of that. And I think the public sees that and understands it. But again, I, I, I do think uh, when that credibility is regained, I think this, the public may start giving us the benefit of the doubt again and, and realizing that the job is, is a hard job. So you touched on training, and obviously that is key to knowing when and how to appropriately use force or to avoiding it altogether. So talk more about the types of training officers receive. I do a lot of teaching for cops and non-cops. You know, I've actually presented a lot for police oversight conventions, and I've taught thousands of police officers. I started out teaching defensive tactics and force, how to use force. What I've seen in my experience has been that the cops who are the most skilled at using force are the most confident when they go out there and are the least likely to need to use it. And often when I see officers using force, it's the ones who haven't practiced or aren't accustomed to physical confrontations and feel unsafe. And it's fear that they aren't thinking logically about their decisions and what they're doing. Whereas the officers who are very well trained and, and practiced are able to go in there and really make calm decisions and uh, see things for what they are and not overreact uh, or underreact for that matter. When I see some of these incidents, I do wonder how much of a role fear plays in an officer's reaction. I'm not trying to say that fear justifies an inappropriate response, but I do wonder about being human and being afraid. I don't think in law enforcement we eliminate fear, but I, I hope, hope that we learn to control the negative impacts of fear. So, and, and I, you know, honestly, I, I try not to follow these specific incidents very much because 
it's so easy in the micro to lose sight of the macro. And you can always, whatever profession we're looking at, we shouldn't just judge that group based on their worst act and just examine the worst thing they do and try to figure out how to improve. But we also need to look at when we do things right and figure out why it, why it worked. And, and if I could talk about de-escalation training too, we've always looked at de-escalation as an outcome, like that that person we were interacting with had to choose to calm down and that anything I said or did, it was up to them still whether or not they wanted to choose to calm down. And that is true. But what we started doing with de-escalation training that I think was very innovative and effective is we started using something we call time, distance, and shielding. And instead of always closing the gap and getting control early, we first started working to slow things down, communicating more, creating distance, getting behind a shield so that we could communicate effectively without putting ourselves in the position where force was going to become necessary. Um, And sometimes even walking away and making a decision, hey, if the reason that I'm there to begin with is a low level, not a safety issue, sometimes I'll walk away. You know, as an example, if it's a mental health issue and we ask ourselves, hey, should we even be here? Do we have legal authority? If yes, does it make sense given the nature of the reason that I'm there to begin with? You know, low-level incident, maybe I'm going to walk away and find them another day um, when they're not drunk or high or whatever else, maybe making it hard for them to comply at the time. And and if I do need to stay there and get control of the person, slowing things down, waiting for more resources, uh, taking steps to calm myself, deep breathing, you know, centering myself so that I can make better decisions. Um, so when I first went through that training, at first I was like, that didn't make sense because it, it wasn't congruent with the way I'd always been trained. But once I started doing it and I started reviewing officers' reports and seeing them applying it, and some of the officers who were known for being very assertive and doing making good decisions were putting in the reports that they were using time, distance, and shielding. And you could read in these reports that there were times when they expected to have to use force because of their past experience. But when they applied these tactics, they slowed things down and they were better. I think it's been a great change. And a lot of times officers would be like, well, the longer I talk, the more dangerous it's going to be because, you know, I don't get control early. And like I talked about before, that was the old way of thinking. When in fact, we know that that's not the case, right? And spending a little time to gain that trust and and voluntary compliance is going to make it much less likely you need to use force. But it's been a, a shift in thinking. We have to constantly evolve and strive to be innovative and creative and focus on fundamentals, you know, and I I think that fundamental is sanctity of human life. And one of my biggest worries is during these times when the public is not supportive of what we're doing, uh, even the good cops are going to struggle and make more mistakes. You mentioned earlier contacting someone who was possibly in mental crisis, and maybe that was not the time for you as an officer to interact with that person. There's a lot of talk right now about having civilian mental health experts respond to those calls. And I'm wondering, do you see that as working? My concern is a lot of times those calls can become dangerous. So do you see that as a possible solution? I'm a fan, not of either or, but and. I believe the co-responder model is ideal. Uh, I think we need cops who are better trained and better prepared, but we need other people who may be better suited to do certain things. So I think as a profession, we need to be more open to uh, interacting with these other groups. Uh, But like you said, I think a lot of these situations can be very dangerous. And I think when we, as law enforcement, inevitably, there's a lot of criticism about the small number of calls that we go to are actually criminal. But almost every call when it comes out sounds like a crime and it sounds like violence. And we do a pretty good job of getting there and, and, and sorting through it and figuring it out. The struggle that I've always had is 
when it is a mental health issue, there are very limited resources to take them to. And the typical response is we have somebody who's suicidal or a mental crisis, uh, behavioral crisis. Uh, we'll take them to a hospital. We'll fill out some paperwork and ask for an involuntary committal. And then and a lot of times the emergency room doctors will just release them because they'll ask them, are you really suicidal? Are you really going to hurt somebody? And they say no, and the doctors just release them. So we see this, this cycle where when people are in their environment and they're exposed to substances or alcohol that uh, may alter their thinking or they have underlying mental health issues that haven't been dealt with, uh, they have these cycles spinning out of control. And in the middle of the night, we're the only ones available to go. I think if we could also bring in other resources that are better suited to deal with people in those situations, it would be great. Uh, but I'll also say that most uh, social workers and mental health professionals are not used to dealing with people in their home when they're in that cycle of crisis. They're used to making appointments and meeting them in their office. So I think both groups need to be flexible and both groups need to learn from each other about how to respond because we've done a pretty good job with those things, even though we probably aren't the best person to go. I think they can learn certain things from how we've done things. But I also think that the frustration becomes when we're the only option and nobody else is willing to go out there. And we all know that there are people who may be better at calming somebody down and meeting their mental health needs. So I'm a big fan of co-responder model. I'm a, I'm a big fan of having options to incarceration. The only option should not be arresting somebody for something like a low-level crime or a drug offense and take them into jail. If we know the underlying issue is substance abuse or mental health and we can get them to that treatment and it reduces the likelihood of them going out there and doing another crime that within hours or the next day, isn't that a better model? But right now there's just limited resources in that way. I do think there's a finite amount of money. We need to figure out where to spend it. If there was a way to have both the police and co-responders to come out to deal with these things when we figure out that it's not something best handled handle through the criminal justice system, I think that would be the ideal model. But it's also probably the most expensive model anybody could build or imagine. We have to make a choice as a society. Do we want to find a new and better way? Uh, do we want to invest in our community? Or do we want to just continue making stuff up as we go and having ineffective and dangerous models that we apply to uh, some of the most unpredictable events. You mentioned a finite amount of money, which is true, and how expensive this model of response would be. There's a great deal of conversation right now about cutting police budgets. I believe in order to reallocate some of those funds to programs like the co-responder option. Part of those budget cuts would also come from officer salaries and result in cutting staff. If they were to reduce the number of officers, we're only going to be going there and arriving there when things have spun further out of control. And I, I can only see us increasing the amount of force that we end up using or the frequency of force we're using because we're not there um, with enough resources and, and quickly enough to uh, stop things earlier and use things like time distance and shielding to gain compliance or de-escalate uh, because we're only going to be stretched even thinner. You know, part of what also gets cut is training. And training isn't just defensive tactics or crisis intervention. It's also things like implicit bias training, which is critical. Bias is a, a natural primitive mechanism built into human beings and most animals actually to help them navigate the world and maintain their safety. We learn from experience when we're in danger and we start to perceive those elements of danger in our subconscious and we may not even always recognize what those are. And when we have these things that create this reaction in us and we're not aware of them, it's called implicit bias. And I think one of the things that we're also trying to do in law enforcement is make people more aware of their implicit bias. You know, I always talk about the only way to change implicit bias is to expose yourself to 
a variety of people who are different than you in positive circumstances. I coach uh, weightlifting in high schools through a program I started where I get cops and firefighters in the schools lift, lifting weights with kids to kind of build those relationships because I want cops in there meeting these kids in these areas that create a lot of calls for the police and I want them to get to know these kids in a neutral environment and not just meet them for the first time when it's a crisis because both parties then are going to struggle. You know, that's where I think in law enforcement we need to go next is to try to figure out how to minimize or mitigate the negative impacts of bias. And I think it's way more complicated than, than people really understand. I want to touch talk a little bit more about the program you have with youth and why that's important to you and for them. So uh, with my upbringing, I was fortunate to have a lot of really positive influences from a variety of backgrounds, but one of the most impactful was positive interactions with police officers. And the school I went to growing up was pretty violent. We had a, a lot of gang problems. We had shootings and stabbings on campus. I remember having a football coach, a wrestling coach, an assistant principal who were all current, former, or part-time police officers. And demonstrated through their interactions with kids that they really cared and that they wanted to be a positive influence. And knowing that they were a police officer too really reinforced that's what I want to do with my life. So you mentioned the weight training program you conduct at an area school where you're pairing up police and firefighters with youth. Tell me a little bit more about how that works. So I had approached the school with this idea that I wanted to create our weightlifting club uh, after school. And by going in there and training with these kids, they're able to really have a positive experience. And I know one officer in particular who really was struggling with just frustration with crime and drug use and kids that he was interacting with that were disrespectful and so on and so forth. And putting him in that environment where he was interacting with these kids in that positive environment really turned things around for him. And helped him really change his outlook on his job and, and, and how to approach his work. And so it's been a really good experience. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of the program also helping police. That's an interesting byproduct. Perhaps that was all a goal all along. What impact do you see the program having on the kids? I had one parent that came up to me and when her son started, he was really low self-esteem. He had a really negative attitude. He was getting fights all the time. And after we had been training him for a few months, I noticed huge improvements in his performance and his attitude. But his mom called me and, and she told me, she's like, you know, my son's, his dad's a drug addict. He has zero interaction with his dad. He's got no ma positive male figures in his life. He's kept getting in trouble, getting in fights. And since he's been doing your program for the last three months, he's built self-confidence and self-esteem. And he's decided he wants to be a police officer one day. He took a kid who was on the brink of really going down a bad path and, and he's able to turn it around. Um, you know, that's, that's why I do it. Even if I just do that once, you know, that makes it all worthwhile. Well, that's pretty cool to go from wanting to have positive interactions between kids and police and then to have one of them go so far as to want to be a police officer. That must, that must feel great. That's, that's wonderful. I heard you say earlier, I've seen other officers do some really heroic things. I'd love to end on a positive. Is there something that you were thinking about in particular, an incident, or what prompted that? You know, I, it's a variety of things. You know, uh, sometimes the little things like just going the extra mile are, are really important. But I think some of the things that police officers do routinely are things that no citizen would be willing to do. You know, the fact that when somebody calls because they need help, 
and we go there all by ourselves in the middle of the night when it's dark and stormy out and we put ourselves in harm's way because we think somebody needs our help and that we can do something to save them. Even being willing to sign up to do that, I think is heroic. I'm very proud, of, like I said, of when cops do those things. And, uh, you know, I've been in very dangerous situations where I've walked out of there thinking like, Oof, how did we how did we survive that? And that's not even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about going an extra mile. I'm talking the heroic thing is, like I said, compassion. It's like you identify, you identify with somebody, you figure out that they have a need and you put yourself in harm's way to meet that need. Uh, but it's these other things that keep you going that give meaning and value to what we do and allows you mentally to take that risk of knowing you're putting yourself in harm's way. Uh, you're willing to take that risk because of the opportunity to, to do something heroic. And again, I think if the public understood that, now's not the time to talk about those things because the public doesn't want to hear that right now. And I get that. Uh, but at some point, I think as much as we need to empathize with the public, I think if the public can learn to empathize with us and understand what we do as well, you know, that middle ground is where we need to meet. And, you know, all of our discussion today has been me telling my middle ground version of events, but nobody wants to hear the middle ground when people emotions are high and frustrations are high. And hopefully when that pendulum starts to swing back, we can catch it in the middle and, and actually make some positive change.